Good morning. On this Mother's Day, I'd love for you now to take your Bibles. We're pausing in our series in the Psalms, and we're making our way to the Newer Testament. And today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that deals with the relationships that mothers have to one another, with one another. It's, um, it's an extraordinary story. And the passage that we're looking at is in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be exploring together verse 39 down through verse 56. And I'm going to be reading verse 39 and down through verse 45 so that we get a bit of traction and understand the direction that this passage is going to be taking us. And hopefully by the time we're through, we'll be able to say that we have honored our parents, honored our mothers, and brought glory to God's name. And so the physician, Luke, penned these thoughts were in the third gospel, and in verse 39, we find these words. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so what we're going to do is to examine these verses and what is also known as Mary's song. She's very gifted musically in the coming moments, but first of all, we're going, to, we're going to look to our Lord together in prayer. And Father, what we want to do now is to reflect upon who you are, reflect upon how you work, reflect upon the work of Jesus Christ, giving praise to you for all that you are and all that you have done. Now, Father, our objective here is not to talk to mothers, but rather to talk about our mothers so that we can talk about this for both men and women, children, the sum total, those watching online as well. And what we want is to have the full sense of your plan here, redemption, as it begins to unfold in this particular story with these particular women. We want to be able to understand their relationship to you. We want to understand their relationship to each other, relatives, friends, but most importantly, a bond that is found in Jesus Christ. And for all those, Father, that are feeling that sense of responsibility that comes with this whole matter of motherhood. 
pray that they realize that this journey is not to be traveled individually. It's collectively. And there's wisdom from prior generations that needs to be applied to the footsteps on this journey today. And we want to look at this particular generation of Mary and Elizabeth and understand what it is you want to teach us. Extraordinary story with extraordinary sons. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. And join me as we make our way to Jerusalem, and as we do so, I want you to see what appears on the screen. And because this is a combination of statues that we've visited on, on occasion, the last in 2019. And here we find, outside of Jerusalem, in Ain Karim, roughly about well, 10 to 15 minutes of a drive outside of Jerusalem going westward, you make your way to the Church of Visitation. And as you do so, and you get out of the car, you get off the bus, and you make your way to uh, the entrance, you stop. And you gaze. I remember multiple generations of women that were gathered around this uh, dual combination of statues. I wished I could listen in as they reflected upon, upon what they were thinking about, what they were observing, and how this relates to modern day life. Uh, this combination of statues speaks to our hearts because as we've pointed out in our insert for this morning, Mary and Elizabeth, relatives, one carrying what we might call the forerunner to Jesus Christ, Elizabeth carrying John the Baptist. The other, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Mary carrying Jesus. Ponder the differences between the two. You start with their ages. Elizabeth is in her latter years, while Mary enters motherhood in the early years. So there they are in close proximity to one another. What are they talking about? I think Elizabeth's saying, you know, I'm a little old for going to mops. Mothers of preschoolers gathering. Uh, I don't know about those 19 steps going downstairs. Mary's saying, but there's an elevator to be had in the coming days. <laughs> Such is the bond of motherhood. There's a oneness here. Not only, though, do we find that there's a oneness despite the age differences. There's also oneness in the timing of all this. For you see, Elizabeth, Elizabeth had to wait a long time for this child. Mary, on the other hand, motherhood came quickly. But there's similarities between these two as well, as we note. Both are Jewish women steeped in the rich heritage that comes with the promise of Messiah through this line. 
Both would be well-versed in the extraordinary theological promises, the redemptive promises concerning the Messiah. Both would experience what we might call a disruption in their everyday, ordinary life experience. For Elizabeth, a disruption that comes at a latter stage of life. For Mary, virgin birth. But both demonstrated faith in God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what they share in common is this extremely significant bond that comes when one has put faith and trust in Messiah, Messiah Jesus. What I want to do with you as we look at this passage of together in these moments this morning is to simply draw two significant aspects of this dynamic relationship that I think have direct bearing upon the way in which we go about living life in 2023. One is what I might call a horizontal relationship. The other is what I would call a vertical relationship. And together, we see the cross-section, the centerpiece, the epicenter being Jesus. The first comes out of verse 39 through 45, that you and I, as we honor our mothers, I want to consider with you, first of all, the example of the Christ-centered fellowship here and being, and being experienced. And so we pick it up now in verse, in verse 39, don't we? And we're told, in those days, Mary arose. And we say, but in what days? Well, the answer is, is that Mary has just been visited by Gabriel. She's been informed that she is carrying Messiah. Elizabeth's husband had also been visited by Gabriel with regard to the forerunner, John the Baptist. Gabriel's been a very busy angel, I want you to know this morning. So there you have it, and so it's in those days when you have this dual visitation occurring. Well, in those days, what I want you to see next is that Mary takes the initiative. Mary arose. Now, the distance between, between where Mary lives and where Elizabeth lives is perhaps a two to three day journey. Well, I want you to see at this point is that Mary arose and went with haste. Now, Jesus would be a zygote for the biologically oriented at this point, while John the Baptist about six months along. Combined, though, what captures the attention is that while you and I think seriously about God's protective hand upon Mary and Joseph as they made their way to Bethlehem to register at the time in which Jesus gave birth. Before that journey, God's protective hand was upon Mary who arose and went in haste and made her way in this two to three day, perhaps did she walk, to the place of Ein Karem outside of Jerusalem where Elizabeth and her, her husband, Zechariah, were ministering. So Mary is taking the initiative at this point. It's as if she has gained a sense of the gospel promise. And now what does she want? 
She's about to explore fellowship of gospel. These extraordinary mothers at this point are experiencing a oneness that comes in the commonality of this redemption plan where both of their sons we part and parcel of God's strategic approach to salvation. So Mary takes the initiative. Mary arose. This is not going to be something that's a slow walk. She went with haste into the hill country. Now, as we have examined in the Psalms over these past weeks, months, years, I know. Well, the issue here at this point is that she's making her way through the hill country, and this is all part and parcel of what are known as the Songs of Ascent. Songs of Ascent, yes, because she is ascending the hills, making her way to Jerusalem. What's she thinking? What's she processing? She's been informed that she and her relative Elizabeth are co-conspirators, if you will, in this redemption story unfolding. These mothers, there's a bond here. And so these mops, these mothers of preschoolers are you're going to find a, a convergence point in Elizabeth's home. But Mary's got to do the work. Mary arose. She went, went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Hmm. Well, in verse 40, what you and I are informed of at this point is that she entered the house of Zechariah and, and greeted Elizabeth. Now this house captures my attention. If you look very carefully at the screen, to your left is what is known as the Church of the Visitation. Well, the Church of the Visitation is positioned on top of the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And so if you were to enter a visitation, what you will find are frescoes, murals. And as you look around, what captures your, your attention at this point is that central feature where these two women are greeting one another. They've got stories to tell. They're struck by the timing of this event. And here's Mary, and she's done the work of travel. She's made her house of Elizabeth, who is now up in years. And this story begins to unfold in such a way in which you and I now begin to nod our heads and say, only God could pull this one off. As, um, as she greeted as she greeted Elizabeth. Well, you read on a bit. And as you read on a bit, you and I are informed of these words, that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, mark this, the baby leaped in her womb. 
notice the timing of this. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what captures my attention at this point is that in the original language, the Newer Testament is written in, in Greek, is that the Greek word here for baby is brephos. The same Greek word brephos is used in Acts 7.19 to describe the young Hebrew children slaughtered at Pharaoh's command and of the unborn child, babe, John the Baptist, in his mother's womb in Luke 1, 41 and 44. In other words, the same word is used for the person outside the womb as it is for the person inside the womb. <laughs> it's as if God is making a significant statement at this point regarding personhood. That personhood is found both inside the womb as well as outside the womb when you're considering the creative work of God. And so now, what I want you to see is that within the womb, there is a mental acuity. Furthermore, there is a spiritual awareness that John the Baptist would be cognizant and leap for joy. There is something dynamic happening not outside the womb spiritually. There is something that is happening inside the womb spiritually. Personhood within the womb, one person within the womb responding to the other person within the womb, an extraordinary statement of who God is and the creative power, how God works, the Greek word brephos speaks to your heart, speaks to my heart. And furthermore, what I want to see at this point with you is that uh, John the Baptist did not wait till adulthood to do his forerunner work. He was already making an evangelistic statement within the womb to Elizabeth that you are in the presence of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This was a, a physical awakening, so to speak, as the baby leaped. I want you to ponder the timing of this. God's sovereign purposes of this. And it's not lost on me that this is penned by a physician who writes this, Luke. As she now exclaims with a loud voice, a loud cry in verse, in verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, as you and I examine the scriptures, what we bear in mind is that God has created a pivotal contrast between blessing and curse. Mary hears of this blessedness, not once, not twice, but in this passage three times. 
Yet at the same time, she will be standing at the cross of Christ eventually, where Jesus Christ will take the curse upon himself so that you and I might experience the blessing of salvation. As a matter of fact, when Joseph and Mary make their way into the temple, in Luke chapter 2, of verse 35, Simeon will prophetically make a statement that the sword will pierce her soul. At the end of the gospel accounts, what you will find is that a sword pierces Christ's side. There is something extraordinarily challenging, difficult, yes, even painful in the realm of family dynamics. There is blessing, there is also hurt and pain and anguish. All part of the dynamics of living life in a fallen world. And here now, she will hear these words evangelistically speaking, so to speak, from Elizabeth, prompted by the forerunner within her own womb, Blessed are you among women. It's as if the forerunner is already um, creating a sense of testimony. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And my mind goes back, of course, to Genesis 12, where another thing that Mary and Elizabeth share in common, their Jewish heritage, where the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so now we see this amazing story unpacked, but also promised at an earlier point in, in Jewish history. For she adds in verse 44, Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, to reiterate, because when you've got a testimony to share, it needs to be repeated. The baby, the brephos in my womb, leaped for joy. Now Mary's going to have to process at this point what's occurring what's involved, the dynamics of all this. Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She married at the age of 19, the wife of Samuel Wesley, an Anglican pastor. And over the course of their 44 years of marriage, the family suffered illness, death of children. Fire destroyed their home not once, but twice. But through it all, Susanna trusted in the will of God and placed her life in God's hands and her family's life in God's hands. 
She bore, we are told, between 17 and 19 children. Ten survived. Frequent absences of her husband because he had a strong, powerful, itinerant ministry throughout Great Britain. But she was the centerpiece of Christian dynamic in the home who taught not only the scriptures, but through her own example, the biographer tells us, a daily trust in God. All but one of the children learned to read from the age of five, including the girls. Susanna made it a rule, the biographer tells us, for herself to spend an hour a day with each of the children over the period of a week. When the home caught on fire, John was rescued, almost lost in the blaze. He would refer to himself eventually in his writings as a brand plucked from the burning fire. And Susanna Wesley would write that she intended to be more particularly careful of the soul of this child that God has so mercifully provided for than ever I have been, that I may do my endeavors to instill in his mind the disciplines of what Christianity entails. We're told that after her husband passed away in 1735, Susanna lived with her children, particularly John, in the last years of her life and is now buried in London's Bunhill Fields, along with John Bunyan and Isaac Watts. And while her sons led thousands upon thousands to saving faith in Christ, they did so because their time with their mother was their starting point. Their starting point. Don't underestimate the home is the starting point by which the evangelistic work of God's grace gets applied. And so in verse 45, Elizabeth for the third time now raises this word that of course has, is echoing in their minds because they know the Genesis 12 story of Abram. And blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her what was spoken to her by the Lord. And when I read that, and I see this extraordinary bond of motherhood, then I'm thinking about the impact that the home can have upon, upon people and the relationships that women can have with one another. Lauren Green, uh, religion writer for Fox News, talks about her relationship, her fellowship with a woman in the Hamptons of New York. Her name is Kathy. And Kathy, she says, herself is an extension of the home. And I cannot separate that house from her incredible spirit. She is one of the true women of faith whom I have met in my life because the home is the extension 
of her heart, which is true of a mother. She writes, after a very difficult experience in her own life journey, Lauren Greens. Coming to Kathy's simple home in the Hamptons is like coming to a sanctuary where I feel rejuvenated. At a low point in my life, instead of coiled up like a fetus in my New York City apartment, I was able to stretch my limbs physically and emotionally in Kathy's home with welcoming arms. The cozy fireplace, it radiated a sense of security the stuffed sofa, the chairs in the living room, cushioned my contorted conscience. The front porch where I'd sit staring at the lawn brought a sense of solace I had long forgotten as two women who loved Jesus sat side by side. It was Kathy's home that I began to realize that God had not forgotten me. It was quite the opposite. In fact, and I've marked this. He was blessing me. He brought me to a place in my life to get my attention. First emotionally, with turmoil. Then physically, with this sanctuary. This is God's grace. And I knew for certain in this relationship, this relationship of two women, that in this one quiet moment when God spoke to me through something so ordinary, was, was so common, here were the depths of relationship and the calming presence of God's grace found in his created, in his created order. So Lauren Green writes from her book, why my faith is like a lighthouse. And there you have, there is what I'll call the horizontal dimension that connects them together. You and I, we, we honor our mothers, I'm talking about them, not so much to them. We consider the example of Christ-centered fellowship being experienced in 39 through 45. But here's the flip side. It's what I'll call, it's what I'll call the vertical dimension. Then number two, as you and I, as we honor our mothers, well, furthermore, you consider the example of Christ-centered worship and being expressed. Fellowship is, it's horizontal. Worship, it's vertical, but it intersects with Jesus. And so you begin now in verse in verse 46, don't you? And here, you and I, we pick up what is known classically, historically, as, as Mary's song. Some have referred to it as the Magnificat, and we'll explain that because you and I find out Mary is about to, because she's musically inclined, she, she enters into song. It's as if now she is singing into the soul of Elizabeth, the younger to the older. And Mary said, my, my soul magnifies the Lord. 
Now, you and I know at this point, and if you've been around for a bit, that when we get to this word magnification, we have to think both telescopically as well as microscopically. The stars are much bigger than the telescope, yet the telescope magnifies them and brings them closer. And for the mother, she has the opportunity to look at those in her extended relationships for whom God might seem to be distant, removed. She magnifies telescopically, and God is brought closer to their lives because of what she says and how she lives. But you see, this wise mother not only is thinking, thinking telescopically, she's also thinking microscopically with the small things of life all of a sudden look big. And she might look at her extended circles and say, well, for that particular one, whether it be in the extended family or among friends, uh, God seems rather small. And we're going to have to find a way to magnify him, to enlarge him, so we get the full significance of who God is. And so, both telescopically and microscopically, here's Mary now, musically communicating, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. But I want you to see the personal dimension here. My, my Savior. She needs a Savior too. She's not sinless. And so she is referring to the one within her womb as she sings of her Savior. And so there needs to be a way to minister to hearts. And I can imagine Elizabeth now processing as this song is entering into not merely her ears, but penetrating her heart. Jeanette Ruth Highlander. She's sitting at a, a piano. I've entered into the living room. Seated next to her is my, my youngest family member, Carol Ann Highlander. My mother is with the Lord. Carol Ann is with the Lord now. But there was a day when I had entered into the house Years ago, mug of coffee in hand, and I was leaning against the wall. They didn't know I was there at the moment, and my mother, Jeanette Ruth, was singing. And Carol Ann, with her head leaning against my mother's shoulder, was listening. And my mother was sing, singing songs about God, she was very gifted musically. And then she was pausing at that point and explaining the song to Carol, a special needs child, who might not have the full capacity to be able to understand all that was being taught, but at the same time loved the teacher who was offering the teaching 
as my mother found ways to communicate timeless truths in this timely way, relationally, personally, and spoke to my heart. And I think of Jeanette Ruth, and I think of Mary. And here now Mary is singing, she's singing personally. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Look at all those mys. For you see, the biblically oriented mother understands the twofold dimensions of horizontal and vertical intersecting at Jesus Christ. You've got a song to sing. Sing it. There's an Elizabeth to listen. Let her hear it. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me. Well, she's simply now embracing what Elizabeth herself had taught. Blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. But you see, you and I, we're in, we're taken aback by what's here. This is called the Magnificat. And she begins personally in 46 through 49. Look at what appears on the screen. You're in Ein Karam with me, roughly 15 minutes outside of Jerusalem. There at the Church of Visitation, you're examining what I will call the wall of song. You name the language, it's there. Each plaque contains the words of the Magnificat in whatever language is spoken of in today's culture. The Magnificat in Greek, the Magnificat in Spanish, the Magnificat in German, you name it, the Magnificat in English. It's there. And watch as people are looking for their own language as they look for the plaque that resonates with them. But no matter where they go, it will be the same story being told in the language that communicates to them the story of grace. A mother has got a song that needs to be sung a song that needs to be heard, the song of grace, as Jeanette sings to Carol Ann at the piano in the living room of their life. But notice with me that this song moves from what I will call the personal aspect in, in found in 46 to 49 into what I might call the global aspect that's found here in verse 50 through 53. And in his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Notice the extremes. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He, he, he was, has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty, where in this Magnificat, Mary moves, you see, 
from the personal realm of her life into the global sphere of life. Michael Reagan. Michael Reagan is recording some thoughts about the way in which his father, President Ronald Reagan, explored the pull of Christian faith upon Mikhail Gorbachev, who had been a leader of the old Soviet Union. Reagan, Michael Reagan, describes how Ronald Reagan three times posed this question. Who do you look to for guidance? To the leader of the Soviet Union. Michael Reagan, describing the scene, tells us of Gorbachev's response. My grandmother was a Christian woman, he told President Reagan at that time. What? She would go to church every day. And then after church, she, they, she would come and visit me and say, Mikhail, I went to church today and I prayed for the atheist. I prayed for you. Now, isn't that interesting? Michael Reagan writes, recounting this, Mikhail Gorbachev did not say, as he had said before, I, I'm not a diehard atheist, but I'm an atheist, nor did he say, I'm a believer. Instead, he quietly, after three questions from Reagan, told the story about his Christian grandmother in response to the question, who do you look to for guidance? What was he saying? And what impact did a prior generation have upon him? And how did that impact the wall that crashed in Berlin under the reign and the rule of Gorbachev? You move then from what we might describe here as the personal dimension in 46 to 49 through the, what I'll call the global dimension, 50 through 53, where it then ends with the national dimension that is found here in, in 54, 55, and so on. Because now... What you and I read is that he has helped his servant, Israel. My word, this young Mary, teenager, has moved from the personal dimension through the global dimension, bring it into the national dimension and her heritage for Elizabeth and her now to process as their sons would face Roman rule. Untimely deaths? Now God is sovereign. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. As perhaps Elizabeth is thinking about Sarah, who would give birth in her latter years. Forefathers. As Mary might be thinking of Hannah, and the song that she would sing, a prior generation. 
And now the national dimension comes to the forefront. She's the lips of a mother. On the inauguration day of the 40th president of the U.S., Michael Reagan writes, my father, Ronald Reagan, placed his left hand upon the well-worn Bible of his late mother. Then he raised his right hand, took the oath of office, and Dad's hand rested on the words God spoke to King Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, heal their land. But I then note what is penned next. In the margin next to that verse, President Reagan's mother, Nell, had written these words, quote, a most wonderful verse for the healing of the nation, unquote. And now she's taken timeless truths and with her hand, her son's hand upon the Bible, she's applying them in the most timely of ways. And that's how motherhood works, you see. And where you have the intersection of the horizontal and the vertical, it all comes together in the rich fellowship that is found with God's Son and with God's people. And you give praise, and you praise God that he had a plan in mind for mothers to bring glory to his name. Joyful Mother's Day. Let's stand together. Not so much talking to mothers, talking about mothers. About you, the sovereign one's plan and purpose in the matters related to motherhood. Thanking you for our mothers. Thanking you, Father, for the way in which you've, you've put a song in their heart. It's a song to be sung. It's a song of grace. It's the Magnificat echoing here in 2023. So we thank you for who you are, the bond of motherhood that's there. And pray you'll now take the words of this study, apply it to our hearts, that we might make a difference in the culture that you've placed us in for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.